0: Patricia Duff, and welcome to the Common Good. Uh, We're going to have a little bit of a delay before uh, we have our Congresswoman on. Um, We're going to find out how long that will be. In the meantime, I just want to welcome and acknowledge a few of our honorables and our VIPs in our audience because we've got quite a few notables. we're expecting uh, as our honorary advisory board members, Congresswoman Jane Harman, Alan Patrickoff, Byron Ween, Kay Koplovitz, Stan Schumann, um, a couple of honorables, uh, Gillian Sorensen, Amanda Burden, uh, Juju Chang from the press, also from the press, Judith Miller and Nancy Collins, and a lot of past speakers and hosts like Kim tae Bill Hubbard, Richard Solomon, Karen Meal, Debbie Bancroft, Jonathan Barnett, and Richard Gordon. Um, I'm happy to have our Young Changemaker Award sponsor, um, Sharon Patrick, and um, an ASA awardee, Henry Shelfont, for freedom of expression. And of course, there are so many activists and donors and engaged citizens on the call to name you all. Um, So we're going to hopefully just talk amongst ourselves while we wait for. Um, uh, for Katie to join us, but um, I did want you to, to meet our, our moderator today, who's also on our Honorary Advisory Board, uh, Tom Rogers. Um, he's going to lead the conversation. He's a media pioneer, editor-at-large at Newsweek, and most importantly, a great friend of the common good. Uh, You probably are familiar with many of the corners of the communications industry that Tom has shaped as he revolutionized political and business news coverage worldwide through the creation of CNBC and MSNBC. Uh, But Tom has operated the nexus of media technology and public policy for more than three decades, and his latest company, Engine Media, Joined the NASDAQ board with the, uh, the uh, call letters G A M E GAME. Guess what they do? Uh, in just the past couple of weeks. So, congratulations um, to you, Tom, for that. And, and thank you so much for moderating this important conversation. So, um, I'm happy to see you, Tom. Looking very serious.
1: Uh, I, this brings me back to my days of being a counsel on the uh... Capitol Hill, uh, where I served as a lawyer to a congressional committee and keeping a schedule for a member of Congress is a hopeless cause. 'cause (laughs) No matter what you do, the uh, bells calling them to the floor have a mind of their own and it disrupts meetings throughout the day and particularly when they're getting close to congressional recess time and uh, they're trying to jam in all kinds of things on the floor. They have zero control of their schedule. So uh, I, I guess we just have to bear with this a minute and hope uh, that she returns from the floor uh, quickly.
0: Yeah, we've got a, I've got a lot of fascinating people on board like Mary Boys. Hi, Mary. <laughs> she almost never shows her face. I have to say hello. Ed Cox, too. Hi, Patricia.
2: I think i face. You know, Tom, <laughs> you know, Tom saying, uh, this, this Katie Porter brings me back to my old days uh, as the original Nader Raider, uh, tossing stuff like she tossed the people at uh, just about anyone we could in Washington, including the Federal Trade Commission. We got kicked out of the chairman's office, in fact, for roughing him <laughs> up a bit bodily. <laughs> Great days. Yeah. yeah.
0: Great days. Linda Janklow. Hi, babe.
3: I, I unmuted myself, hello.
0: So glad to see you. David Kemp, who just joined one of our boards, our important board, hey, David. Richard Gordon. Trisha. Gillian. Our Honorable Gillian Sorensen. Leonore Wendy Jacobson. Janet. Rick Reese, glad you're with us. Get a call out to Diane Kahn. John McCall, Kay Koblowitz. Thank you so much for coming. It's been such a great help. Calypso from our staff, Axel LeBas, Anne-Marie Cunningham. Hi, Anne-Marie. Thanks for the little shout-out on your that you wrote about us. My pleasure. I appreciated that. My pleasure, Patricia. Um, we've got Bob Wyman, Jen Lambert, Sarah Unterberg, uh, Derek Henry, Alan Warner. I, I guess we have Anita, and I hope we have um, Byron Wayne as well. Robert Rogers, Richard Werthammer, Barbara Allen, Nancy Collins, hey, Nancy. Jace Ecker, Brian Mack, oh, Charlie, and Morley. So we've got, we're still um, happy to have you all here. So we probably have a lot oh, of people.
1: Sorry, supposed Tom. supposed to do it, a couple minutes of comedy, Patricia, to warm up the audience, <laughs> even Colbert style.
0: Yeah, go ahead. Have uh,
1: <laughs> I'm just here to ask questions.
0: I wanna know if Mary's <laughs> on her boat. Mary boys, are you on your boat?
4: No, not now, but soon.
0: Okay. Nick Rosenthal and Sylvia Rogers. Sylvia, hey Sylvia, I didn't recognize you. There you are. It's Tom's better half.
4: Once again, Patricia, you are a marvel.
0: <laughs> well, let's see if we get um, our guest, right?
1: I, I have one very insulted audience member here who was very disappointed he was not uh, given a shout out.
0: <laughs> he's great. What is he?
1: This is Rudy the Golden Doodle. Uh,
0: he's, they're very
1: he had a look on his face of great disappointment that he didn't get any <laughs> acknowledgement.
0: He got, his, he got his face in there, and he's, he's um, very handsome. There's Kathleen. Hey, Kathleen Roberts.
5: Patricia, if I can, why don't well, can, let's, can we take advantage of Tom's being here and given his extraordinary background, ask him? Is his that
0: Jonathan Barnett? Yes. Thank you, Jonathan. Yes. One of our great hosts, Jonathan. Go ahead. What are we saying?
5: Tom, given your background and what you've created, what's your view of what's what's happening in news today? It's not just the reporter of the news, but it actually is the news is about what's happening with reporters and channels. And is this where think of where MSNBC is? Think what's your views on what's happening and where it's come?
1: Uh, Well, uh, most of the news channels are suffering from Donald Trump withdrawal. Well, many of us may be happy with what Twitter did in taking him out of the uh, minute by minute uh, daily conversation. Um, News channels are uh, really suffering in terms of uh, the decline of their audience. Since uh, his uh, departure from the scene in terms of being uh, in everybody's face in every news cycle. Um, the more, uh, the, the other challenge of, of news channels today is the one that uh, Netflix and Disney Plus and Hulu and all of them have created by most entertainment programming going to streaming. And what that has caused of course is an acceleration in cord cutting and fewer and fewer people taking the Uh, Cable and satellite bundle and why that's important is that um, most of the revenue that news channels uh, get comes from the fees uh, paid by uh, every cable and satellite home so news channels at any given time may have less than 1% of television homes watching them but they get substantial fees from 100% of cable and satellite homes. And as the number of those homes shrink and what's expected to be uh, market uh, shrinkage as uh, uh, streaming services continue to gain popularity and fewer and fewer people see any reason to pay $100 a month for cable or satellite, that's a significant uh, uh, overhang on the economics of uh, news channels. Uh, So you're beginning to see some creative finance enter the the new space. Uh, Just this week, uh, BuzzFeed uh, going public through a SPAC, uh, something that uh, you would not necessarily have guessed because BuzzFeed is not the uh, strongest of news enterprises, but uh, now that's going to be a public market vehicle. And news operations of a digital sort are going to have to get more and more creative about how they uh, structure themselves from a business point of view. So the the double punch of fees and Donald Trump's withdrawal are uh, creating less than rosy picture for today's uh, news.
2: So has MSNBC increased the amount of advertising time? I mean, it's besides every drug you never wanted to take, um, (laughs) there are, they seem to go on interminably. at least 10, maybe 25% of the time now is advertising on, on the big MSNBC shows.
1: Uh, it's, a, it's a good point. I think most cable networks as audience has declined and radian, ra- ratings have declined, uh, they have uh, tried to uh, shoehorn in more spots, which which in my mind is self-defeating because that chases more and more audience away less so in the news space more when it comes to them doing that on entertainment channels and people get increasingly frustrated and go to non-commercial streaming services Uh, but yes that is uh, definitely a phenomena and you know news channels in their current form skew uh older you know most news audience is 60 and older and that's another thing where advertisers don't pay as much as they do for uh uh 25 to 54 audience and so that's uh that's an additional overhang so uh reinventing the news model is something that uh has to happen What's
0: like that gonna be tom is it okay. gonna what, what's that new new model gonna be
5: uh
1: well that's a good question i my personal view is that the news channels are going to have to get together as much as the rabid msnbc audience wants nothing to do with fox and the fox audience wants nothing to do with msnbc if they're not going to get fees from every cable and satellite home they should try to get uh fees from every news home and i think if all the major news channels and less known news channels from reuters to yahoo news to ABC and CBS both have streaming channels that you can get on things like Roku or uh, Apple TV and uh, put all those together in a streaming service for $9.99 and you begin to uh, make up for the fees that they're not getting from cable or satellite and you create a very broad package of news channels. Now, Apple Apple did that with uh, magazines, as some of you may subscribe to the Apple News Bundle, where you get a couple hundred magazines and some newspapers for a a $9 fee a month. Uh, But they haven't pushed it very hard. They haven't been very successful with it. And I think uh, if somebody were to do that in the television news arena, you could make it pretty interesting with all kinds of customized features and letting people customize their own news programs. And Making news a whole lot more, more uh, personalized to the individual user, but um, they all protect their individual uh, news properties in a way that uh, it's going to take, I think, some uh, harder times for them to suffer before they come around to thinking they participate in something like that.
0: Well, I, you're not going to do that for us, Tom. Get that started, or one of the, someone on our. Uh in our gallery well, today.
1: I'll tell you if if we could get people to watch news programs of all stripes so people truly got a full view of uh, voices from all over the place that would probably cause people to understand things far better than the parochial viewpoints many uh, are only subject to we'd probably have a a better informed and balanced citizenry. So I think that's a great reason to start the profit-making arm of the common good, where the common good news bundle is out there serving uh, the cause of uh, better balance and everybody's news diet. What do you say?
0: I like your thinking. What do, what, what do you think, Alan Patrickoff? You got a, a, a news uh, content organization in your mix?
1: Yeah, you got you got the pioneer of all pioneers Talking yeah. about news, the founder of New York Magazine there. How you doing,
6: Alan? I, you, I was just going to chime in. By the way, for those you know, Tom can't comment, but his new company just went public this past week or this week. I'm not sure. Uh, with, we
0: we already announced it. Game.
6: Oh, okay. I missed it. Okay. He's
0: he can, got game.
6: He can't speak about it, unfortunately, at this point. But uh, uh, what I was going to say is, uh, first, Tom, you echo my thoughts, and I've said it out on this gallery, and I've said it to Patricia at least a dozen, maybe two dozen times that she's not exploiting in a positive way, the aspect of the possibilities for the common good, which is a really great source of news, information, politics, et cetera. But uh, beyond that, uh, I think one thing you haven't talked about which is something where I put a lot of focus in is this is not for a self-interest, but uh, just a comment is uh, the whole podcast world and uh, uh, the ability to, for people to uh, use audio. Audio is growing by leaps and bounds now. Podcasting is, you know, well over a million podcasts are making. Being made. Spotify Ooh. is going act- actively into the field. Apple is. Uh, I'm sure many people when this uh, uh, streaming video uh, today are, are putting out their own podcasts. So that's a, I think probably Judy Miller must have one. But uh, uh, one way or other, the audio, (laughs) let me just finish one thing audio, you can multitask with audio, which is a big, big advantage. So I'm not saying it's going to replace the news you talked about, but it is uh, probably chipping away somewhat. and
0: nope, uh, Kate nope. Kaplovitz's father uh, wrote the fairness doctrine, um, something a few of us miss having. Yeah, I mean, we, started we did have the USA doctrine. network.
3: Yeah, we have fairness doctrine for quite a number decades, but uh, under the Reagan administration, it was scrapped because uh, basically the argument was there were so many cable channels and so many other news sources. Today, all of that dwarfs in comparison to what's available out there today. And I think that people are going to result, uh, resort wow. to you know, more curated content you can't possibly uh, navigate. Um, and talk about the podcasts, Alan. I mean, millions of podcasts are out there. Most, most of them are lousy actually, uh, but there are really good ones, uh, and it, but it's still hard to find them. Um, and I, I, I think that we're gonna go into a period and this whole idea that Tom brought up about you know, putting things together and bundle it up for news. I don't know if people will watch news coverage that they don't have any relationship to, um, what is being you know, offered by their news uh, commentators, but maybe they would. Um, and I, I honestly think that we're gonna go to a period of time where people have to have a little bit more concentration to find the things that they want, or at least more curation. Because uh, you know, like you can wander around and spend a lot of time wandering around trying to find things um, that you're interested in and being oftentimes quite disappointed um, okay. that it doesn't measure
6: up. You're okay. absolutely right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let me give you an original thought before time goes on. You know, if you combine all these original audio things, uh, comments together and you put them together and combine them, you know what you've got? Radio.
3: Yeah. Well, we have Clubhouse. That's
4: what
3: we have. We
4: have Clubhouse. <laughs> you know. Can I, yeah. I just was thinking when Tom was speaking, hi, this is Diane Kahn out in LA. Hi to everybody. I'm glad to be glad here. You. Um, you know, when I think about bundling that you were talking about, Tom, that for me is what Sirius did on the audio side, because I find that I find myself it's really easy to just listen to Sirius. I understand there's a whole production in the studios behind it, but you can get, I mean, you can listen to Australian broadcasting on, on Sirius if you want. Any radio station in the world, you can actually get on Sirius, along with all the cable channels. So to me, that's a form of bundling. I don't know what the numbers have been since they since they came on to all the news stations. But in, in terms of access and ability to move from one to the other without having cable, I think it works pretty well.
1: That's absolutely. it. Absolutely. And it's a, uh, I, uh, you're absolutely right. And it's a great uh, precedent for why they should do it in the, in the video world. Um, they, they, they think there's only one way to get to you when you're a commuter in a car, and so they have to participate in that bundle, but the same logic should apply to a video bundle as well. And uh, Kay, to your point on podcasts and uh, tens of thousands out there and no way to know what you wanna listen to, uh, Google is particularly bad at being a search mechanism for the world of audio. And you would think a company that is the most successful advertising company on the planet uh, where it sells advertising based on the quality of its search would have figured out by now a way to make it easy to search and find exactly what you might be after from a podcast point of view and they're horrendous at it. So there's, uh, there's a business there for somebody to be able to do that. There's um, a
6: company that's doing that called Pod Chaser. That's attempting to do it. P O D C H A S E R. I think it would be a great benefit
2: because you know most the amount we have to pay for our cable television um, is so high now on Long Island that, that to be able to just get what I watch 98 percent of the time. Uh, at a $10 a month rate would be great. I'm on my Zoom. I yeah. know. I found an app which gives me MSNBC, CNN, Fox, and the BBC British Broadcast. I've never been able to find it again online, but on my phone I have all of those things together. So. Gives me video on all of them. It's uh, very bizarre.
1: That I don't know.
2: That's interesting. Never been able to find it again. I can't figure out how to transfer it to my computer or I would have done it.
6: Pat, uh, Patricia, can I do a, a very short promotion on something? Uh, sure. We, we just invested in a new company called Racket, just like you spelled t- R-A-C-K-E-T, which is an ability for every single person here with one, one press of a button to do your own podcasting uh, with no no equipment, no, no anything. And it's free and it's you can do up to nine minutes. In effect, it's Twitter for audio. So you can do a two-minute every day. You could Tom, you could go and broadcast on Racket. It just started about a month ago and it's going viral at the moment. So anyone who wants to try becoming a, a mini podcaster, you can, you know, whatever you think of. No one's no
0: Sounds pretty brilliant. Brilliant.
6: Are you a racketeer if you participate? Yeah, I get it. You got it. You got it. I didn't think about that. I'll tell them that time. You originated the idea.
0: So, oh. anybody ha- have any ideas for uh, how we get truth out in these new and these new whatever new things we're going to uh, develop? Truth matters.
3: Matters to some people. Unfortunately, not all people.
0: Unfortunately, and and we all see, and so many people have different views of what the truth is, but hopefully we can make it better. And we do we do have Katie coming on pretty soon. She left the floor um, for votes, so she should um should be on pretty soon.
1: Well, let's hope that her office is in the Rayburn building and she can take the subway back. She's <laughs> in Cannon or Longworth. She's walking back, and that's not a fast walk. I can't afford to have her miss a vote.
5: Tricia, can yeah. I ask the question of Tom? Yeah, please. Tom, one of the things that I feels like, from the viewer point of view, is an increasing amount of news coverage is of news channels covering each other. If you watch Brian Stelter, easily a quarter of his broadcast is about Fox News, if you watch Fox, you see what, you know, is that a good thing? I can't imagine Walter Cronkite bad-mouthing Chet Humley. Uh,
1: <laughs> well, that, that, Stelter has that uh, media review show of the week and uh, Fox has one called Media Buzz. And uh, the point is for the, for the media to examine the media, which has its role, but coming from those particular sources, Obviously, you're going to get a fairly skewed view of uh, the uh, the other side than the one that they uh, represent views from. Um, I, I actually think C-SPAN, which uh, for a while had a more meaningful role in the media landscape, um, and uh, lost, I think, much of its viewership, even though it went from purely showing uh, House, Senate, and uh, committee proceedings into uh, some produce programming, Uh, but I think there's a role for, you know, examining media, examining media bias and perspective from all sides, Um, and I I actually think that uh, C-SPAN, which is paid for by the cable industry, and the cable industry therefore is responsible for things like Fox News, underwriting it, supporting it. Uh, everything that is disseminated there is paid for by the cable industry paying enormous fees to Fox News could use C-SPAN as a way to uh, educate people about what's uh, uh, right and not right about news coverage and they could easily label programs that are in need of people turning to in a more objective perspective of what have been said what's true what's false etc and I think a more structured approach to holding the media feet to the fire is something that we'd all benefit from. How you get people to watch that would be a function of the cable operators being aggressive about cross promotion of it. And as I just said, cable operators are losing their audience. So it would go beyond them. But to me, C-SPAN is a huge funded public affairs network where there's a public affairs role they're not really filling today.
0: Okay, that's um, I just wanted to, we're, we're gonna have uh, Katie Porter on pretty soon, So I just would like to do our little intro and then we can go right into your conversation with her, Tom. Is that okay? We I mean, I know we've got a lot of other things to love to talk about, like our New York mayoral race. Um, but um, as you all know, I mean, the prospect of this, much needed infrastructure legislation is closer than it's been in decades and there's wide support on both sides of the aisle for bricks and mortar and broadband upgrades because america has fallen far behind its peer nations when it comes to such infrastructure ranking 13th in the world according to the world economic forum and we're not just talking about roads and bridges anymore And that's the part that's going to make passage of this bill difficult. Democrats say we need investment in our human infrastructure as much or more. In fact, human infrastructure situation may be even more dire than the state of our physical infrastructure. And that's why Democrats are calling for major investments in family and child care and education, such as universal preschool, all for good reason. The US has now dropped to 28th of 163 nations worldwide, slipping down from 19th in the newest social progress index. That low ranking puts the US behind even much poorer countries like Estonia, the Czech Republic, Cyprus and Greece, in spite of our immense wealth, military power and cultural influence. Those types of metrics fuel the drive by leaders like Katie Porter, to increase investment in human infrastructure since the proposed spending would help mightily in mitigating our decline. But there's stiff opposition to vast expenditures in these areas. Can these two parties get in sync? So it's an important conversation. Um, And now I guess where she's still not here, she'll be here shortly. (laughs) Maybe she is taking the uh, long walk instead of the train, Tom.
1: Well, I don't know how many people knew this about her, but that she named her daughter for her favorite law school professor. Do you want to do you want to tell us about that, Patricia?
0: Is that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg?
1: No. Who is it? Actually, for Elizabeth Warren, who oh, you're uh,
0: kidding? Oh.
1: taught her uh, taught her bankruptcy at law school. And she named her daughter Betsy after uh, Elizabeth Warren.
0: That's great. I didn't realize. I forgot she'd gone to. I forgot she'd gone to Harvard. I
1: think, I think the B for, for Betsy was for bankruptcy, though. I can't really figure out how how she got to that.
6: Um, I may be asking a question that I I probably should know the answer to, but we now must have millions of miles. Of cable that's been laid, uh, uh, you know. I mean, any implication about that? I mean, this cable that's there, as you're saying, people are not using for for television anymore. They're cutting the cutting the cord. Uh, any comment about our embedded infra- infrastructure of cable in the country?
1: Well, I think that is one of the unique things about the infrastructure, Bill, that we are for the first time defining infrastructure as uh, all the uh, connectivity, wires, broadband, um, cybersecurity issues related to that. Uh, but, you know, that that the, the cable operators are very happy to reclaim that video uh, part of the wire and use it for high-speed uh, broadband delivery, which of course, they, as, as they lose customers from video, they, people are not literally cutting the cord. They're maintaining their cable service um, as their uh, high-speed internet connection. And uh, as you know, Alan, the value of cable has grown dramatically off the back of them, no longer being the, uh, their video business, but their broadband connection business. And here is our star. <laughs>
0: We're thrilled Hello. to have you. Thank you for, for being here, uh, Congresswoman. We're thrilled to have you. Uh, we already did our introductions. Um, so I'm gonna let you jump right in with Tom because everybody's really they're keen to hear from you. so you go at it.
4: We need, We need you to unmute though. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for your patience um, as I got off the house floor and um, got over here and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Tom, you need to unmute. Tom looks a little frozen.
1: Now I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Terrific. Well, I I don't know what your views are on the filibuster rule, but I can tell you we have been filibustering for the last half hour, (laughs) um, covering all kinds of subjects we won't bore you with. Um, There's
4: nothing wrong with the filibuster and filibustering. It just doesn't belong in the United States Senate.
1: (laughs) Well, we uh, we made good use of it. Um, uh, Congresswoman, you have shown yourself to be a a phenomenal congressional inquisitor. And uh, uh, given the fact that uh, I don't even think you went to an accredited law school, that's particularly impressive. Um, For those of you who don't know, Congresswoman is a graduate of Harvard Law School, and we mentioned the fact that uh, you had the uh, uh, great senator from Massachusetts as a uh, law professor. Um, I- I'm actually a former uh, Democratic uh, committee counsel going way back early in my uh, career. And I can tell you it is, was really hard then, and uh, I can tell it's still hard, to find members of Congress who can question witnesses the way that you can. Um, I I find most Congressional hearings are really about Congress, Congress people making speeches and the quality of the questions are awful. Usually the follow up is is uh, not helpful in terms of eliciting information. And it's not because we have a shortage of lawyers in Congress. Have you ever thought about holding a seminar for your colleagues on how to hold a congressional hearing, how to question witnesses, how to drive a point home and truly elicit information?
4: Well, actually, Jamie Raskin um, had exactly that kind of session when I first got to Congress, and it was maybe six months in, and I'd already done some some good questioning um, of of the Wells Fargo CEO and of Jamie Dimon and some other people, and I went to um, the session, and there were like four members there, and essentially, it was four of us who probably were not the most in need um, of that kind of, of training. But I still found it really valuable. I'm a professor. I believe in learning things. And um, Jamie gave several really good examples of very, very um, excellent congressional questioning and talked about kind of what are the different points? What are we trying to accomplish when we ask questions? And there are different things. Um, so sometimes when we're trying to ask questions, we are trying to draw out stories or lift up stories that have not been heard. Sometimes we are trying to to create accountability. Um, sometimes we are trying to expose hypocrisy. Um, but the different thing that you're trying to do really shapes, I think, how you think about the questioning, the tone, the pace. Um, and you know, I think a lot of my sort of background on this is, you know, these these five minutes matter. These are some of the most powerful, most important, most influential people, whether they're a CEO or an administration official, they make change in people's lives. We ought to be using our five minutes to understand their perspectives and what they can do to help us solve problems.
1: Um, couldn't couldn't agree with you more. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about it in these terms, but... Uh... Who did you enjoy? I'll use the word nail. Who did you enjoy nailing more? Mark Zuckerberg or Jamie Dimon?
4: Um, you know, I, I think that my conversation with Mr. Dimon was more important. Um, and I wanna give him some, you know, some people have said, oh, I was too hard on him. I, I actually think I was, I was very fair. The fact that he couldn't answer, I think is something he should think about. Um, But I I think that dialogue, that was an example of sort of doing two things at the same time. One was exposing the story, the perspective, the reality of working in America. Um, And the worker that we were, you know, the hypothetical worker made much more than minimum wage. She made 1650 and yet was struggling to make ends meet living in a high cost of living area. Um, So part of it was about telling that, you know, what do you think about this? But the other was, Mr. Diamond is extremely bright and very talented, and he has a lot of things to say in his shareholder letter, within the business round table. And so I wanted to really get his thoughts. And I think the loss in that moment wasn't that you know, he didn't have any you know, it wasn't that I showed him up. It was that I really was asking, what should we do? When companies are paying the prevailing wage, and people still can't make ends meet, and and I think that that you know yes, part of the answer is pay them more, but this is actually a problem about the expense side too, right? About the cost of housing, um, and about housing finance, and about public investment in childcare, and these are all things that as a CEO he should be thinking about because it's about his workforce. Um, and so you know Mr. Zuckerberg, I mean, to be honest, he was so nervous, which I kind of did enjoy. Um, but it, he was an example, I think of an overcoached witness where he used one of my um, one of my favorite you know witness techniques talking very slowly because they know we only have five minutes so Mr Zuckerberg did this thank you representative Katie poor I mean it was like 30 seconds before he even got to telling me that no he was not willing to try his hand at being a Facebook content moderator for violent content and see how terribly difficult and painful and really traumatizing that work can be. Um, so I think they were both important, but I think, you know, with Mr. Diamond, we have somebody who is really a leader and has a lot of potential to be a positive force. How can we harness that potential um, is really what that question was about. You know, I, wanted, I want him to come, he said he'd think about it, and I, I've said this before, I hope he is thinking about it. Um, because And I would really welcome the chance to, to ask him, having thought about it, what do we do?
1: Well, um, before I, we're here to talk in large part about infrastructure and what you're dealing with right now. But before we move off the issue of congressional oversight, uh, it has struck me as close to ridiculous that committee subpoenas, congressional subpoenas, when need to be enforced in court, the House and Senate are treated like almost any other litigant would be um, in terms of the time frame and delays it takes to get through the process and actually get to a judicial decision. And it is beyond me that there hasn't been some action taken to have an expedited framework for the enforcement of congressional subpoenas. It is a reason with the Democrats in control now and seeing how difficult it was relative to a Republican administration that... Democrats are concerned about having that kind of power in Republican hands if uh, Congress switches back?
4: Well, I think this is a a fundamental underlying point that you're raking, which is that oversight and accountability are not things that we just need to do when the other party is in power. Um, This is fundamentally not just about which political party's in power. It's about the balance of power. And so Congress's ability to ask questions of the executive and to get answers, Congress's ability um, to to investigate whether laws that we have passed are being followed. um, Those are things that ought to concern us, regardless of which party is in charge. And my colleagues Ted Lieu and Adam Schiff and others um, have been giving thought to, and I think Ted has a bill on this, to, to try to beef up and streamline the process. You know, but I have a hearing today, and I, I, t- you know, I asked the, the most important entity is a, a hearing about a coal ash plant in Puerto Rico, you know, in, a, in a very low income um, community. And it's, it's contributing to rates of cancer that are one in four, um, if you can imagine that, in proximity to this plant. And we asked the entity responsible for the plant to testify and they said yes, and then they said no, which is not a thing, I just wanna be clear. If you say you're coming to Congress, you better show up. So they said yes, and then they said no. And today, you know, I made very clear in the hearing, I am absolutely prepared to subpoena them if necessary. But when companies know that if they stall, the Congress will run out, and the other party may take control, then those subpoenas lose a lot of their effectiveness. And so I think we always should be inviting companies and witnesses and trying to get them to come voluntarily. But when we have to use our subpoena power, these are time sensitive issues. People are dying because of this coal ash plant and uh, adding a year or two to having a discussion about who's responsible and what can we do, real lives will be lost in that time. So I think it's important to remind people, these are not just about esoteric legal maneuvers. Real lives are at stake when Congress can't get answers.
1: Well, uh, since you said it's not just about holding the other party accountable, I got to make a comment about your service on the Financial Services Committee uh, last term. Uh, I followed that closely, having been counseled to what at, at the time was called telecommunications, finance, and consumer protection subcommittee, when finance was part of a subcommittee of energy and commerce and had not yet been broken out into a major combined securities and banking uh, committee. And it was a gift to the committee that with all your knowledge, uh, as uh, both a law professor and uh, uh, the uh, role you held down in California relative to uh, uh, banking issues, uh, that you are on that committee. Uh, You lost your committee seat because the leadership wouldn't give you a waiver relative to serving on other committees. Um, And uh, to me, that was a huge loss, because if we're going to have appropriate oversight in that area, you need your most expert members of Congress on it who truly understand the substance. Any shot that you'll be able to get back on there, you think?
4: I hope so, and I think there are a couple observations here. One is I am never going to let my job, uh, my work, my responsibilities to the American people be cabined just by my committee assignment. And so there are ways without being on the committee that you can lift up issues. One example is through doing staff reports. So I am not on the committee that is in charge of, for example, overseeing organ donation. And yet we did a really breakthrough important report about corruption and malfeasance in the organ donation um, with organ donation, uh, organ procurement entities. And so there are other ways to make a difference. Um, I asked the Chairwoman uh, Chairwoman Waters, if I could speak the other day about a. Uh, effort to reverse a Trump-era rule that would have facilitated predatory lending. We're stepping up. We're we're striking down that rule last week in Congress. And the chairman let me speak on the floor and share my perspective and knowledge. And so I I think I hopefully will get a chance to keep working on those issues even off committee. Um, But I also have to say, it's really important that members of Congress understand that you don't get to just work on the couple things you care about i have to work on all of these issues because they are all important to this country and i like to learn so i have actually had a very very good time um on the natural resources committee and i have to say i mean there is something called in my mind this special interest playbook where like these very powerful ceos are all clearly coached by the same five lobbyists and what the polluters say is exactly the same stuff as what the big banks used to say, right? You know, to overregulation and, you know, um, uh, you'll crush innovation and unintended consequences and maximizing shareholder value, it's all the same. Malarkey. And there's this, so I think being able to take that and then translate it into other issue areas. And that's part of the reason I love being on the oversight committee is I get to work across issue areas on everything from Pentagon transparency to issues about car seat safety. So I really appreciate the compliment. And I I do intend to continue to work on those issues, particularly working on affordable housing and housing supply and by affordable housing. I just want to be clear. I mean housing for nurses and teachers and pharmacists and, you know, um, you know, psychologists and I'm not talking just about low-income housing. We have a real problem in many parts of our, of this country with housing for middle-class families. And so that is an area where within my role as the deputy chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, I'm going to be leading our task force on housing. So I'm continuing to look for ways to work on these issues.
1: Very good. Very good. All right, let's turn to infrastructure since uh, I'm sure you've been involved in countless conversations about how to thread this needle here. Uh, the, there's a uh, so-called bipartisan compromise related to what is known as uh, traditional infrastructure with some new elements that we were talking about before you got on like broadband and uh, new, uh, new additions to traditional infrastructure. Um, and uh, Biden, of course, first said that uh, he supported it Then seemed to suggest it was tied to the so-called human infrastructure elements, having to be uh, tied to with through a reconciliation process. Then he backed away from that, uh, though it doesn't seem as if congressional leadership has backed away from tying the two. You come from a, uh, a very swing district. You're the first Democrat ever elected from that district. Um, this has to be one where uh, I got to believe you understand the political value and Biden getting through a bipartisan compromise on something that there is that much support publicly for. Uh, what do you think the right way to handle this is in terms of these things being tied, not tied, uh, sequencing, et cetera?
4: Yeah. So let me just start by saying if you're totally confused by what Tom just said, you're not alone. So this process of budget reconciliation and bipartisan and the American people are lost about what we're doing here procedurally in Washington. And so I want to try to back up and just help everyone understand kind of how, what this really means in, in really regular everyday terms.
1: You, you are what, dealing with a pretty sophisticated audience here. so you, Yes, you but I, I mean,
4: I was be. lost earlier today with <laughs> okay. Chairman Yarmouth of the Budget Committee. So I, I mean, we're, it's a struggle. The struggle okay. is real here, um, and there are plenty of, of senators who don't know what's going on either. By the way, so what we're really talking about here, as I think about it, is is making sure that we're delivering on the president's commitment to build back better. And when, although he talked about jobs and families as he rolled out his two plans, I think the better way to think about this is work and workers. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create jobs, good, high paying jobs, jobs that will be here in the future, jobs that pay a prevailing wage, jobs that permit collective bargaining. And then we're trying to create and support the workforce who is going to do that work. So the infrastructure bill is an absolute necessary part of this. We have to make those investments in updating our infrastructure, both. The kind of big picture airports and and um, you know shipping ports transportation and then we also have to think about the infrastructure that's inside people's homes clean water broadband um, those things and there is no way by the way that we can deal with transportation and infrastructure without thinking about climate why do I say that because transportation is the largest contributor to pollution, to fossil, to climate change. So we can't deal with transportation without having a conversation about how we're gonna do that in a way consistent with climate. So congratulations to the president and to my Republican colleagues for coming to the table here on infrastructure. And I'm excited about supporting it, but we have to also support the workers. And we have to also make sure that as we're building back better, we're not leaving certain kinds of workers and certain kinds of Americans behind. And so what we're going to do here is the budget resolution that's hopefully going to come out soon. And it's confusing because they both are words, but we're going to come out with a budget resolution, either the Senate or the House. I think it'll be the Senate and it will give a framework, a kind of set of top line numbers for what we need to do to complete the president's work. I welcome, I pray that Republicans support that because those programs are just as critical to economic recovery and to building a strong, stable, globally competitive economy. So we hear all the time about how the United States is falling behind in investment in infrastructure in broadband, in rail. That is absolutely true. But the United States is also at the very bottom of the world on issues like paid family leave, universal childcare, providing healthcare and affordable healthcare to retirees and seniors um, having a sensible, Im- functional immigration system, we have to also address those things because we, those things are about the workers and about making sure that we have that global workforce to compete on those jobs. I so th- ultimately, after the resolution number comes out, we'll go through this reconciliation process and fill in those other elements. And that's where some of what President Biden has put forward with regard to childcare with regard to um, additional climate provisions, electric vehicles, where some of those things are gonna come in. I do agree with Speaker Pelosi and I agree with with the Progressive Caucus. I I think we have to do both. And if Republicans wanna get on board and do both, fabulous. If they don't, we'll pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill and then we will pass a partisan, if necessary, budget process that delivers the rest of what the American people need.
1: Well, that, that sounds like the, the right plan. I'm not sure it's coming across that that's the, the plan of congressional leadership because it makes a lot of sense to me, pass the bipartisan plan, get the win on the uh, traditional infrastructure. You turn around and you say, well, that's great that we've just uh, helped bridges and roads, but to your point about workers, we've just created jobs that probably nine out of 10 are for men and that uh, now we have a situation where we gotta get women back to work. And I think as you've pointed out repeatedly, we've probably lost uh, close to 3 million uh, women from the, from the workforce during the pandemic. And a lot of that relates to childcare and uh, elder care and the whole issue of uh, a more care services economy where jobs can be created for women. So why not pass the bipartisan compromise and come back and say, Okay, now we got to pass the women's workers plan and the family protection plan, including making sure your home isn't blown away by violent storms, which includes climate change, and go hard at that to the extent you can't get Republicans on board. You do pass it on reconciliation, but you don't look like you're willing to sacrifice the uh, uh, the issue of uh, traditional infrastructure and a bipartisan win uh, because you can't get everything in one bill.
4: Yeah, and we don't. I mean, look, you're absolutely right about kind of. How this is being messaged about. And and frankly, the Republicans are seizing on the strategy here and, and, and trying to paint a certain kind of picture. And we have to help the American people understand. I do think, Tom, it is important to move these things very, very close in time. Um, I really, really do. Because I think particularly the
1: time, but don't or don't give one the one the vote without. Uh, I, I
4: think we should bring them to the floor simultaneously. I mean, I, I mean, obviously it's not going to be the exact same minute. Somebody's going to have to go first here. But I do think we ought to do that budget work, which we can do very, very soon. We can do it in July. We can get this moving, and then bring them to the floor at the same time for, for two reasons. One is it signals to the American people that these things are not disconnected. If we, you know, and you're right about, well, a lot of the hard infrastructure, traditional infrastructure jobs may be for men. But when you look broadly at jobs, like being a public transit driver, driving a, a bus, school bus drivers, um, all of these different things, there's a mix of jobs and a mix of workers. And we need to signal, because it's been an you know, awful, pretty much our whole country's history, that policies that disproportionately affect women are an afterthought. and. I don't, I don't love that. I am a woman and I, I do work and I do contribute to our economy and to our tax base. And I so I think it's important that we do them as close in time as possible. There is no chance, unless the Republicans do it to themselves, there is nothing about the budget process, about addressing the care economy, about addressing climate change that is going to change or should change Republican commitment to the bipartisan infrastructure deal. If they're trying to pull out of the bipartisan infrastructure deal, then then they're trying to double-cross us and that's on them. They may or may not vote for this budget deal, but we do need to signal to the American people that our president sees and hears the voices and the needs and the pain of every different kind of community. And so I think moving them close together in time and saying that we're, we're not gonna just do one because then we'll spend months and months and the Republicans are already, Tom, and this really makes me mad. Not a lot makes me mad because I have three kids and I'm, I'm used to a lot, of, a lot of drama. It really makes me mad that Republicans are already unwilling to work across the aisle because they are so sure that they will be in power in the House in 2022. So I have bills where I had a Republican co-sponsor last Congress, that person is still here. I go back up to them, I say, remember our bill that we were working on together on this issue? And they say, yeah, I don't wanna co-sponsor it anymore. Well, why not? Do you no longer care about consumer protection or, you know, healthcare or whatever the bill was about. Yeah, no, I'm just going to wait and do that in 2022 without you and we're in charge. That attitude is so despicable because who's hurt in the interim? The American people who need these programs and these help today. So I I think think we we could message better on this, Tom, to make people understand that we are not the ones that are going to hold up help. The party that's trying to hold up help is the Republican Party.
1: Well, I, I think I wouldn't disagree with that in terms of a lot of criticism of the Republican Party. But I think that's why if there are 10 senators on the Republican side that you can get a bipartisan infrastructure bill done through, I'd get it done, nail it. Uh, if the McConnell strategy is clearly don't give Biden a win if he's got enough. Uh, Republicans who see value for them locally in having an infrastructure bill get it passed. I think the problem with the sequencing, as you describe it, is within the Democratic caucus, there's a long way to go between where Bernie Sanders might be on an infrastructure bill and where Manchin might be on an infrastructure bill. And that's gonna take time. It's a complex process. There's a huge amount of internal Democratic caucus negotiating that has to take place. And I think I'd prefer to see everybody be able to face their districts with, with Biden's political capital riding high, which I think when it comes then to getting the support you'll need within the Democratic caucus for a stronger bill, when it does come to reconciliation, you got a better chance of having it. But I just don't see the sequence lining up to bring both to the floor at the same time anytime I, soon. I, I
4: think one of the things to know is that, you know, the, the, the bipartisan infrastructure deal Is not ready today. The bill is not written. So I I think it's also important to remind people. We're not sitting on it. We have to actually write the bill. And it has to be read and we have to come back into session. And, and so there is this window, Tom, where I think we see, we see how far we can get on the budget process during this window. I do want to say one thing about sort of where Mr. Sanders, Senator Sanders is in his role as budget chair in the Senate and where some of our more moderate House Democrats are, a big part of this is going to come down to two things. How much can we get done in bipartisan infrastructure so that we can bring down the price tag of the partisan budget piece to the bigger and broader and more thoughtful, the more we can get accomplished for the American people in the bipartisan piece, the smaller that difference That part is engrossed. The second thing is there needs and must be some rethinking of our tax system, both enforcement, particularly global tax collection, um, and that will create revenue that will ultimately change how much true spending we need to do to accomplish the rest of the president's agenda on things like the care economy. Um, And so right now, what you're hearing floated is the number that represents everything that we want to do without that some of it has bipartisan support in the infrastructure bill, that some of it is paid for through the infrastructure bill, that some of it's going to be paid through through um, revenue collection. And so once you get to that, the actual gap, it's still, you're right, Tom, it, there's still a gap and there's still conversations and it's going to be delicate, but it's actually not like $6 from Mr. Sanders and zero from Mr. Manchin. There, there's an in-between there and it's when you start chipping away at the fact that Mr. Manchin definitely supports some things and spending on them and that Mr. Sanders that's six trillion. we have to subtract the the infrastructure bill and we have to subtract the revenue that we're going that we're gonna raise to pay for these things. The actual gap in spending is a lot smaller, a lot smaller. And so that's the window in which we have to do this delicate dance. And we're going to have to make choices. I mean, Mr. Manchin, I'm you know I'm I'm a progressive. I'm the deputy chair of the Congressional Progressive caucus. I'm unusual and then I represent a red district as a progressive, but, I got asked about something Senator Manchin said. Um, I did TV last night, and they were playing a clip from him in the morning on Stephanie Rule, who's one of my favorite favorite friends. Um, And Stephanie Rule asked Mr. Manchin, what about this spending bill? Will you support it? And Senator Manchin said, not until I know how much and what for. Well, I mean, yes. I mean, if my kids say, can I have $5, my first question is, what so I, I do think there is a little bit of like until we can I
1: bet your tell, kids are smarter than that. I bet you they asked for 15, hoping that you'll compromise it. They
4: bargained down. And there's probably some of that going on in our party too. So I I think that you know we do need to lay out to the American people, as well as to Democrats, more moderate Democrats, and to the Republicans. What are we asking you to pay for? When you just say, "Hey, can we have a couple trillion bucks?" The answer should be no. But when we say, "Will you make this investment in A and B and C that will grow our economy and create a st- more stable, more flourishing economy?" Well, then I then I think about I think about it differently. So I think we're not at this place. So I think we're negotiating against ourselves, okay. and that's not smart.
1: Well, I got to I got to ask you about something you just said in that answer, which really is fascinating that you are deputy head of the Progressive Caucus coming out of a red district where it is red enough that your numbers underperform Biden in the district. Thank you for
4: reminding me of that, Tom. I love to think about that. (laughs)
1: When, and <laughs> But, you, you know, but you're not hiding, you're going head on as a progressive, despite where that is back home. And that is incredibly rare because, uh, you know, most people who are facing those kind of electoral dynamics uh, look to uh, uh, try to please all sides in every way, and you are going for what you believe. I think you're the only single mom with kids in the Democratic Caucus, is that right?
4: right. Of young children, yes.
1: Um, and um, you know, you're you're just not hiding any of this in terms of fervor for the progressive agenda. So I got to ask you, when it comes to having that many, you probably have as many Republicans as you do Democrats in the mm-hmm. district, with independents, you know, uh, swinging in the middle. Uh, the Republicans in Orange County may be somewhat more enlightened than Republicans nationally, but you have a heavy component everywhere, which instead of thinking that the right thing to do was to reform their party, the way the Republicans did coming out of Watergate, instead Republicans coming out of Donald Trump and January six and everything that that stood for seemed to have doubled down on crazy and double down as time goes on more and more on batshit crazy. How do you deal with that when you are talking to a district that is that heavily populated with people that have those beliefs and think that they're being listened to?
4: Yeah, so I think two things. One is I feel very fortunate um, actually to have a vibrant Republican constituency um, that is not wedded to Trump. So, uh, you know, Trump was very unpopular in the district. Um, and so I feel like it's helpful for me to have Republicans in my district, long-term Republicans who are very committed to some of the longstanding Republican values, but who understand that Mr. Trump was a, an extremely destructive force um, in our economy and in our society, and frankly, in the world. And so I, you know, I feel fortunate to do that. I think, as is often the case, what you see and what I deal with in Washington from Republicans is many, many multiples times more challenging than in my community where I'm talking to Republicans, where we can often anchor ourselves in outcomes. So what do we want? We want a strong economy that's going to create good jobs for our kids and our grandkids. Now, once we've established that, let's talk about how we might best get there. It's fair you can't have those kinds of conversations with with Marjorie Taylor Greene, with Representative Greene. You just—you just cannot. So, I think that you know the goal, and as we talk about bipartisan agreement, by the way, I want to make this point: the goal of how Having these two parties in conversation and in trying to get to bipartisan agreement is to get to better answers. It's to get to better solutions. It's not to simply refuse to do anything or to simply serve your own personal interest, as we saw this president, as we saw President Trump do. So I I think there is an onus on those of us with large Republican Mm -hmm. districts like mine to try not to demonize Republican contributions to debating ideas, even as we condemn the way in which the Republican party, both under Mr. Trump and to some degree today are are anti-democracy are anti-core American values. And, and so I think it's, it's it, you have to sort of try to separate out those things and not let kind of the, the worst of today's Republican party become and, and shape solely how you interact with all Republicans. And so I think having a Republican district makes it easier for me to do that. Because I go home and I talk to some Republicans who do wanna do things like lower the Medicare age because they're really, they see a broken healthcare system. I talked to some Republicans who understand that climate change is real and that we're gonna have to grapple with it. Um, those folks are a far cry from your only Republican interaction. some of my friends in deep blue districts, the only Republicans they talk to are folks like Louis Gomer and Paul Gozar and, i mean those conversations are not easy to deal with those people so i i think it's it's a benefit to have a district where you are able to sometimes get insight about a different perspective but to do it from people who fundamentally want to uphold our democracy and who understand president trump was a destructive force and so i i think that is um you know it's it's much harder to have those conversations with some of my Washington colleagues than it is with some of my constituents.
1: We'd all be better off if we had more congressional districts like yours. Uh, Patricia, over to you to uh, open up for some questions.
0: Okay, we've got a lot of people who want to ask you questions and very little time left, but thank you so much for uh, staying over a little bit, Congresswoman, we've got, um, I'm going to go to Jonathan Barnett, then Judith Miller, then Bob Wyman. We still have Kathleen Roberts and a couple of other folks who want to go. So I hope you guys will make your questions succinct. There are a lot of people on the line who wanted to talk to you, but we're going to do the best we can. I'm going to make sure you, you know who else was on here. We've got a, a terrific group today.
5: Jonathan? How do you continue to negotiate in good faith with people who aren't?
4: Um, I don't think about negotiating. I think about delivering. My goal is to deliver and my job is to deliver what the American people need. So I am not negotiating to a place where we're not delivering. And so I, I think there's a difference between, I mean, we are the party in power. The American people elected us. The Democrats are in control of the house the White House and by a hair's you or just barely of the Senate. So I think there is important to engage Republicans. I think it is important to in- encourage Republicans to sh- share their ideas and to come to the table. But I don't think about negotiating t- against myself at the expense of delivering for the American people. And so I, I think having that frame in mind when you go into a conversation can change the stakes a little bit in terms of of how the conversation flows. So I think our president actually, President Biden has done a very good job of illustrating how to do this. You you can talk to Republicans, you can try for a bipartisan deal, but if they know that at the end of the day, you will use your power to deliver what the American people need, you're making clear to them that their choice is to be part of that solution or to, or to be part of the problem. And I, I think our president, as there were a lot of concerns, I had concerns, I'm gonna be honest, about how President Biden understood bipartisanship and some of his comments and I worried. I think he's actually done a really good job um, of, of showing how you do that in, in that way. Okay, Judith Miller. Uh, hi, hi, Representative Porter. Uh, thank you very much for this. And I'll talk quickly and ask the question quickly. Um, how worried are you about the split in the Democratic Party, the ability to get things through with half of the Democrats dis- disagreeing with the other half? Thank you. Yeah, so great question and I think the Progressive Caucus is doing some really, really good work on this front um, in two ways. One is pinning down our most progressive members that they will stick to the core priorities, that, they, that they're not gonna hold out for everything they ever wanted. Like these are their most important things and we're all gonna come together and you're, you're gonna support it if we can get these core, these core things done. So that's what we have to do to our left flank. We have to make clear that, that they just like, we're not gonna let the Republicans hold us hostage. We're not gonna let the left wing of our party hold us hostage. What do you wanna do for the American people? If I share that, then that ought to be an important accomplishment and a goal. We we pin them down to that. So we don't have hopefully last minute, no votes and antics. So that's been a lot of whipping, a lot of surveying, a lot of kind of getting as much in writing as we can. that If this is what's in the package, then we have the left-wing support. The second piece of this is the other direction. And so it's reaching out to members who, while they may be more moderate, understand that their communities have certain priorities and certain needs. So a great example here is Conor, um, sorry, Jared Golden and Connor Lamb and Sidney Axney, all more moderate members, all frontliners like me with Republican districts, they represent communities that are, that are disproportionately um, older Americans. Lowering the Medicare age from 65 to even 62 or even lower would really, really help their constituents. Um, expanding Medicare to cover vision. How healthy can you be if you cannot hear um, or cannot see to cover vision and, and um, that I'm hearing would really, really help their constituents. Mikey Cheryl, um, a working mom, a Navy fighter pilot, she has four beautiful kids. She understands that childcare is really important to keeping women and women's talent in our economy. So I, I think it, those members may not buy into every aspect of what the progressives want, but we are gonna forge those alliances at every single opportunity. So today, as we talk about, like for instance, lowering the Medicare eligibility age, there are 17 half of the frontline members who support that. It's a lot. And some of this comes down, by the way, not so much. It often gets spun as moderate versus progressive. But actually I see some generational divides here where the new members, regardless of our age, the newer members to Congress um, are coming together to support some of these things and and to work across, work together And sometimes the older members of the caucus who, you know, back when they grew up, you know, health insurance actually covered your medical bills instead of denying your claims. Um, Those members tend to think about the world in in some similar ways. And so I think that is um, really important work that we're doing in the Progressive Caucus. And I'm really grateful for more moderate members for having those conversations and looking for those commonalities. Excellent. Well, we've got two more questions. Do you have time,
0: Congresswoman? Yes. Okay. Uh, Why don't we hear the questions first, Uh, uh, Bob Wyman, and then Kathleen Roberts? Give us the questions, and then we'll allow the Congresswoman to answer them. Both. Keep them short. Okay.
6: Okay. I'd like to say, obviously, from the things, the questions you ask and the things you say, you've done a lot of really good research on these subjects. But ever since. uh, New Grant Gingrich uh, restructured the uh, and lowered the resources available to the House for doing research. People have been concerned that the quality of legislation, the quality of research in the House has gone down significantly. Um, do you feel that uh, the facilities that are available to you in Congress today as a congressman are sufficient to um, support, um, the, the kind of research that, that needs to be done on these issues by, by you and by other congressmen. And then Patricia, our
4: second question. Our second one is Kathleen
0: Roberts. You want to shoot Kathleen? Thanks. You got to unmute yourself. Sorry. Sorry. We were speaking of the news business
3: earlier, and I wondered if there are any discussions about a fairness doctrine for the 21st century that you hear of?
4: Yeah, okay, both great questions. Um, With regard, let me take the second one first. With regard to news and the fairness doctrine, it is a huge problem that we functionally don't have as much true news in, Um, TV or social media or these other outlets as we used to. We have wonderful, wonderful news commentary. So I absolutely, just like many of you, I like to hear what Rachel Maddow's thinking too. And I enjoy listening to, you you know, hear what these commentators are saying, but that's not news and it never was intended to be true news. It's news commentary. And I think it's moved more that way as the electorates become more polarized and that those are people's viewing preferences. So I do think we have to think about as we talk about, for instance, what do we mean by infrastructure? There are things that are infrastructure for democracy, and one of them is information and is news. And, I, and so I do think that, um, you know, trying to think about how we're going to create that and facilitate that and support that um, is really, really important. And I think your questions about the Fairness Doctrine, I do think the Judiciary Committee and the Energy and Commerce Committee are grappling with these things, um, and we're seeing it too around questions about um, content moderation and, and, and um, you know, how social media companies and other companies control the flow of what information people see versus you know, sort of everybody seeing the same shared set of information. Um, This is actually not unrelated to the question that Bob asked about resources and research, Um, because to the extent that news is not giving people kind of the information that they need, there's more and more burden on members to try to figure out how to do that and to to do it. Do I think we have adequate um, facilities and and, um, tools, both human and hard? No, I don't even have working Wi-Fi in my actual house office okay so i in order to get on a hearing that's virtual i have to tether to my cell phone i might as well be in the you know in a a remote area the password so you all have it for the house wi-fi is house wi-fi okay so there are some real problems here and and i think you're absolutely right that what What Newt Gingrich did was essentially hugely influence the American people to believing that Congress is a wasted enterprise. And therefore, we shouldn't make sure we shouldn't make sure that Congress has enough resources to travel across our districts. To have staff to help constituents. Um, and adding to this, Bob, this, the number of constituents keeps growing. So, you know, I now, I now a normal size congressional district is 750, 700,000 people. It's going to go up in the next Congress because that 435 has stayed fixed, even as the population of the United States has grown. So we're not only getting less. In real dollars, but we're being asked to reach more constituents, and I, I have a spare 100,000 constituents, and what that translates to is incredibly high workload for my staff in terms of responding to them, giving them real answers, picking up the phone, traveling to see them, um, and, and so I think there is a need not only to adequately fund the work of Congress, but also to invest in modernizing the tools that we have in Congress to do our work. In order to get the American people behind that, we have to show them that Congress is working for them. And part of that is about policy. It's about the infrastructure. It's about the things that Tom was talking about. But part of that is showing them that we are working hard to do the job using the tools we do have And that's one of the things that I'm trying to accomplish in my hearings. I'm trying to show people that I am prepared. I did do the reading. I do wanna get an answer. I am thinking about their concerns. So restoring that confidence in government, I think, and in Congress in particular, I think is something that Democrats as a party need to be much, much, much more focused on. And I think there is a real tendency Um, And, you know, I hear it from from both sides, from Speaker Pelosi, from Mr. McCarthy to say, you know, the incompetent or the inept or the out-of-touch party is the other one. The truth is, Republicans can be in charge of Congress, Democrats can be in charge of Congress, and you know what stays the same? The American people don't have confidence in Congress. So we have got to own that reality and figure out how we regain it. But to your point, Bob, it's really hard to regain when we don't have the resources to do our very best. And to Kathleen's point, we don't have a, a fair news media that's communicating what Congress is accomplishing. So that is kind of a down place to leave you on. Um, but I, I do just want to, I hope I've conveyed in how I've answered that question that I am here for that fight. I am here for that work. If I leave office whenever that day comes, and a higher percentage of Americans, notice I don't say Democrats, a higher percentage of Americans believe their Congress is working for them, are talented, hardworking, good, smart people, then I will feel that I have that I have made a major change in the direction of this country. And conversations like the one that you've convened today are part of how we do that. They're part of how we restore the American people's confidence in Congress is engaging them in exactly these kinds of platforms. So thank you so much, Patricia and Tom for having me. I'm only nine minutes late to my next group. I don't want them to have to filibuster. So you'll excuse me if I jump off. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. We appreciate thank you. you so thank you. much. Thank you for the time. We've got a lot
0: of fans on here. A lot of a lot of people love you. Thank you. And thank you, Tom, for your questions. Tom, you were you amazing. going held
1: up at three sign with <laughs> She's all over my Instagram feed holding up a $3 sign for this group. She could have held up one with three with a couple zeros. Um, Patricia, as always. Now you thank were you.
0: terrific. That was Thanks great. For we, holding we, this. You, you showed your uh, chops uh, uh, from Congress and uh, everything else you do. So that was terrific. I w- just want to remind everybody uh, on July 15th, we have another rising star, Congressman Alyssa Slotkin. She's fabulous. And on July 28th, we're gonna have former police commissioner, Bill Bratton, who's also an honorary advisory board member. Um, and of course others that are coming up, but Tom, you were great. Thank you all. It's always great to see you and, and have you participate in the conversation. What a filibuster we did. Thank you, Jonathan Barnett, for getting that started. And Tom, you're fabulous. Nice, nice Thank job. you.
5: Happy 4th Thanks of you. July, everybody.